there, everyone. It is Nurse Mo, and welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. Today is episode 75, and we're talking about alcohol withdrawal. So this is a topic that you will be introduced to in your mental health lectures and maybe clinical rotations. So helping a patient through alcohol withdrawal, I have to say, is probably one of the most challenging things that you will encounter as a nurse. It requires an enormous amount of patience, empathy, you have to be very strong, and you have to be incredibly vigilant to keep both the patient and yourself safe. It can be incredibly heartbreaking to witness, especially when it is severe, and it can be very severe. So my hope for you is that when you are in this situation, you approach it with compassion and grace because it is incredibly difficult for everyone involved. For some patients, though, some, not all cases of alcohol withdrawal are absolutely devastating. For some patients, the symptoms can be pretty mild. You know, they may have some tremors, they may have a little nausea, a little headache, um, and that might be the extent of it. But for others, they can be just absolutely severe. So the first time I saw a patient really going through it, like really going through it, it was really eye-opening to me what it was like. Because you think alcohol, it's legal, it's common. How could alcohol withdrawal be that bad? Like if you had asked me before I knew what kind of withdrawal was worse to witness. I mean, I've never been through withdrawal, so I can't tell you what's worse to experience, but just from watching other people go through it. If you asked me if heroin withdrawal or alcohol withdrawal or methamphetamine withdrawal was worse, I probably would have said, oh, heroin for sure, because that's what's always in the movies, right? I would have to say I've seen all of those kinds of withdrawals, and the alcohol withdrawal is just the absolute worst. So I remember this one patient just made me so, so sad, very, very severe, and for days in bed, in restraints, just grunting, moaning, just making sounds that I've never heard a human being make before then or since then. I mean, it was... It was heartbreaking to watch, and I can't imagine what that person was going through, but it looked like living an absolute nightmare. So when I work with a patient who's going through alcohol withdrawal, I just I never want them to have to go through this again. I hope so much that they get through the other side, see the light, and never drink again. Sometimes that happens. Sadly, a lot of times it doesn't. It's a very difficult addiction to beat. So in the moment, in that crisis situation, we, the nurses, we're going to do what we can. We're going to keep the patients safe. We're going to treat them with kindness, compassion, and without any judgment of any kind. 
So before we get into all the things that we're going to do for our patient, I want to talk quickly about two possible serious complications that a patient going through alcohol withdrawal could have. And this is kind of why we take it so seriously, is one of the very severe complications is called delirium tremens. You may have heard people call it the DTs. So delirium tremens is a very severe consequence of alcohol withdrawal. It can be life-threatening for the patient. The patient can have, you know, severe hallucinations. They can hyperventilate to the point that they become alkalotic. They can be tachycardic, have high blood pressure, get severely, severely agitated, maybe even violent, be confused, um, delirious, have hyperthermia, and diaphoresis. It can cause um, fatal arrhythmias, just all kinds of problems. I think the mortality rate is around 5%, so not ridiculously high, but high enough, and it is awful enough to witness that you really hope that your patient does not go into delirium tremens. And then the other complication that we really try to avoid is called Wernicke's encephalopathy. So this is a neurological disorder that results from chronic thiamine deficiency. Thiamine is that B1. So some key signs of this, uh, it is also life-threatening, by the way, are nystagmus, ataxia, confusion. And the reason that Patients that have alcohol addiction are prone to this is that they're often very, very malnourished. A lot of times people who are uh, addicted to alcohol don't really eat a whole lot. They tend to drink their calories and they will come to you very, very malnourished. And then I, I said two serious complications. I meant to say three. The other is seizures. So a lot of times uh, these patients can have seizures. So just keeping an eye for that. And again, if you listen to the seizure episode, you know that safety is the name of the game with seizures. So alcohol withdrawal is very complex, but we're going to streamline how we think about it using the straight A nursing latte method. So if you're not sure what that is, uh, we're going to talk through it here. You'll probably have a clear idea what it is after we talk about it. But if you want more information about it, you can go to the straightanursingstudent.com website, type in latte in the search bar, and it will come up there. So the L in latte stands for how will the patient look? What will they present like when you observe them? What signs and symptoms do you see? What do they complain of? So how the patient looks or presents with alcohol withdrawal, that really depends on how long it's been since they had their last drink. So to determine this, that is one of the questions that you want to ask either them or maybe a family member, friend, somebody like that. Do you know when he had his last drink? Because that's going to give you a timeline to kind of follow to know when symptoms could show up. So though all patients do experience withdrawal very differently, the general timeline is that uh, minor symptoms can start to present any time from as early as six hours up to 36 hours after they've had their last drink. So these minor symptoms could be insomnia, they could have tremors, they could be a little bit anxious, have a headache, maybe their stomach's upset. 
They could be sweating a little bit more than usual, have that diaphoresis, uh, no appetite, and have heart palpitations. So those would be considered some minor withdrawal symptoms that can occur, you know, within like six hours of not having a drink and can occur up to 36 hours after last drink. The seizure risk generally comes into play in that 6 to 48 hours after last drink time zone. Typically, these seizures are self-limiting. They don't often result in status epilepticus, but you always want to keep a close eye on any patient who's having seizures and have these patients on seizure precautions as a safety measure. If you want to learn more about seizures, I just did an episode about seizures, and that was episode 71, and you can also find it on the website if you prefer to read about it as well on the blog. So the hallucinations, these are auditory hallucinations, tactile, visual hallucinations, these typically can start to occur within 12 to 24 hours after last drink. Um, This is a state called alcoholic hallucinosis. So if you hear that, just know that that's what they're talking about. And then the delirium tremens, those very severe symptoms can occur typically around the 48 to 96 hours after last drink time mark. So again, that's severe hallucinations, very disoriented, hypertensive, high heart rate, high temperature, the diaphoresis, that severe agitation, they could even get violent, hyperventilation, ventilating. All these kinds of symptoms can be occurring. It's very distressing. And these symptoms can typically peak at around five days after last drink taken. But again, all patients are going to be a little bit different. This is a general guideline. So that is the L in latte. How does the patient look? How will they present? May follow this general timeline that you'll see with withdrawal. And then A is how do you assess the patient? So one way to assess the patient going through alcohol withdrawal is through something called the CIWA score, C-I-W-A, and that stands for Clinical Institute Withdrawal Assessment for Alcohol. So this basically is a little quiz or a little uh, a tool that you use and you rank points to different symptom severity and you get a score that tells you how severe the patient's symptoms are. So let's talk a little bit about what some of these questions are on the CWA scale. So one of the things that it asks about is nausea and vomiting. So if the patient is having no nausea or vomiting, that's a zero. And then it goes all the way up to a seven with constant nausea, frequent dry heaving, frequent vomiting. It also asks about tremors. No tremors would be a zero. Tremors that are not visible, but when you hold their hand or go to feel their radial pulse, you can feel them. That's a one. And then it goes all the way up to seven, which would be severe tremors, um, even when their arms are not extended out in front or out to the side, even with their arms close into their body, they're still having tremors. That would be a seven score, the highest score. 
Then we have the sweating. So no sweating at all is a zero. Uh, drenching in sweat would give them a score of seven. Beads of sweat on the forehead kind of halfway down the scale gives them four points. It also asks about anxiety. So no anxiety. The patient says they feel at ease. That's a zero. A seven would be like a panic attack, acute panic state. Agitation, normal activity for the patient. So they are not agitated. They're a zero. If they are moderately fidgety, moderately restless, that's a score of four. Say they're pacing back and forth and are constantly thrashing about in bed, perhaps, that's a seven. That's severe. And then tactile disturbances, if they're not having any, obviously, that would be the score of zero. Let's say they have mild itching, feels like pins and needles, that's a score of two. If they have continuous tactile hallucinations, that is a seven. And then auditory disturbances. So let's say mild harshness or they're mildly afraid of the voices that they're hearing is a level two. Um, extremely severe hallucinations would be six points. Continuous hallucinations, seven points. And then we have visual disturbances. They could have none or they could be having... Um, mild to moderate to severe to continuous hallucinations, giving them points on that scale. Then you'll ask them about headache. If they have no headache, that's a zero. If it's, you know, mild, moderate, moderately severe, etc., you will score them points. And then this is the one that's always the hardest to, to assess. You're asking them to their level of orientation. So you ask them to do serial additions. Um, a lot of times that's count by sevens, which I don't know if I could do on, you know, before I've had my coffee in the morning. So um, if they can't do serial additions, or you could also ask them about the date. If they don't know what the date is, that would be a one. Um, if they're disoriented by the date by no more than two days, that's a score of two. If they are disoriented completely to place or person, that's going to get them the max points at four. So you can see how all those different things, you end up with a score that tells you basically how severe the patient's experience of their withdrawal is. So that's one way that you will assess your patient. You'll also watch for signs of withdrawal as outlined above when we talked about all the different stages of withdrawal, um, you know, so you'll be checking their vital signs, you're assessing them for potential for harm, all of those types of things you'll be watching for. And then something to do before the patient is discharged is conduct a cage assessment. So especially if there was a trauma involved, if there's a trauma involved, in the patient's um, blood alcohol level tested above the legal limit, you will do a cage assessment. So this is a screening tool that is used when you suspect the patient may have an addiction to alcohol. You clearly already 
have witnessed that they have an addiction because they withdrew from it. The benefit of having them do the cage assessment is it might help them to realize that they might have an addiction to alcohol. So the C stands for cut down. Have you ever had someone suggest that you cut down on your drinking? A is for annoyed. Have people annoyed you by criticizing your drinking? G is for guilty. Have you ever felt guilty for behaviors related to drinking? And E is for eye opener. Do you need something to get going in the morning to steady your nerves or help with the hangover? A lot of times people won't remember their withdrawal experience, maybe because we've given them so many medications that they don't remember it and they may not understand the severity of their problem. So having them just go through the simple cage assessment when they are coherent might help them think about it a little bit. But I'd say for the most part, if someone's in the hospital for alcohol withdrawal, they most likely know that they drink and they know that it's going to be very difficult for them to stop drinking. So we'll get to that in a little bit with resources that you can provide. So the T in latte, the first T is for what tests will be ordered. A bunch of different tests may be done because these patients can have a lot of metabolic derangements, have abnormal electrolytes and whatnot. So one of the first things to get is a blood alcohol level. These patients will probably get a blood alcohol level drawn in the emergency room, and it will just show what level of alcohol was in their system. Urine tox screen would show the presence of alcohol and other substances that they may be using, such as opioids, benzos, marijuana, methamphetamine, and the like. Electrolytes, uh, this would be done through a basic metabolic panel or a complete metabolic panel or even just individual electrolytes. Usually it's done as a panel. Many times patients who have alcoholism will have alterations in their electrolytes. You know, they may have nutritional deficiencies, so then their magnesium's off or their potassium's off or whatever. Patients who also have pancreatitis, which is also very common in alcoholism may have an associated hypocalcemia. If you're interested in pancreatitis, I did a whole episode about that recently, so check that out. You also may see the MD order a BUN and creatinine level. That's going to be part of one of those metabolic panels. So this would be um, an elevated creatinine would indicate the patient has kidney disease, which is common in patients with alcoholism. And you could also look at that BUN creatinine ratio. Normally, it's between 10 to 1 and 20 to 1. If it's over that, it's usually a sign that they're very severely dehydrated, which happens a lot. Patients with alcoholism are often dehydrated. And then uh, a BUN can also be abnormal in liver disease associated with alcoholism. So just keeping an eye out for that. And then looking at the liver, they could uh, look at the liver function test. You may hear it called LFTs. These are often elevated in patients with alcoholism due to liver damage, and this is a collection of um, like alkaline phosphatase and a few other things, AST, ALT. Those are your liver function tests. Then we have amylase and lipase. These are going to be high in patients who have pancreatitis, which again is very common with alcohol abuse. A pneumonia level, we might draw a pneumonia level if the patient is showing signs of being um, very disoriented, very confused, that is, uh, and we don't think it's because of the withdrawal, maybe it's too early for the withdrawal signs to be showing up, but they're still really confused. That could be hepatic encephalopathy related to their liver disease, and that the body's not clearing ammonia appropriately, the liver's not clearing it, so it builds up and it affects them neurologically, so you do an ammonia level to check for that. 
Blood sugars can often be low because of malnutrition, because of liver impairment, which plays a key role in gluconeogenesis. So if their liver is not working well, they could have low blood sugar. They may also just be having a very high metabolic demand as part of this withdrawal episode. So they could have a hypoglycemia, very common. You also would see maybe a CBC being drawn. These patients are often anemic due to um, a myelosuppression that occurs with long-term alcohol use. So, you know, this could cause anemia, could cause thrombocytopenia. Platelets could also be low due to liver disease as well. So these patients could be very bleedy. So you want to be very careful with that. A lot of patients with alcoholism do, are very prone to bleeding. You'll see um, GI bleeds a lot in these patients, so you also want to keep an eye out for any signs of overt bleeding. Also, dietary deficiencies of B vitamins and folate lead to megaloblastic anemia in patients with alcoholism. So lots of reasons why their hemoglobin and hematocrit could be low. A urinalysis could be done to check for ketones, which could be present in something called alcoholic ketoacidosis, and ABG may reveal um, an alcoholic ketoacidosis as well. And if the patient is having seizures, the MD may order a CT or MRI scan just to rule out any other issues that could be causing the seizure. So lots of different tests that could be done. There may be more, but those are the main ones that I've seen uh, done. Okay, so how are we going to treat the patient? T is for the second T in latte. So protocols for treating a patient going through acute alcohol withdrawal, they're going to vary, of course, institution to institution and MD to MD, but the general standard of care is to reduce symptoms, monitor for seizures, keep patients safe, replace key vitamins and nutrients, replace and optimize electrolytes, optimize nutrition, keeping them safe and harm uh, safe from harm in general and providing resources. So we'll talk about each one of these. So reducing the symptoms of the withdrawal, we're going to use medication. We're going to use pharmacology to do that. So the medications used to treat or reduce the severity of their symptoms are typically the benzodiazepines. You'll see uh, lorazepam, Librium used a lot, and sometimes dexmetatomidine hydrochloride or Presidex. So when the doctor prescribes benzodiazepines for the patient going through alcohol withdrawal, they'll often dose it based off that patient's CWA score. So there will be a range. So if their score is, you know, this to this, give them this many milligrams. If it's this to this, give them this many milligrams. So the more severe their symptoms, the higher the dose of the benzodiazepine they will get. A lot of times these patients can take their benzos by mouth, but you can give IV therapy uh, benzodiazepines for patients having really, really severe symptoms or who cannot swallow safely. And then dexmedetomidine hydrochloride is Presidex, and that's a continuous infusion, kind of a sedative type drug. We use a lot in critical care. It is sometimes used to treat severe symptoms, but that would only be in the ICU setting. 
Then we will monitor for seizures. So again, these patients are at risk for seizures, so we are going to have seizure precautions in place. I talk about this a lot in my seizure episodes, so go check that out if you're not sure what seizure precautions are. Again, most seizures related to alcohol withdrawal are self-limiting, and I was reading about it on UpToDate, which if you have not familiarized yourself with that resource, uptodate.com is a fantastic, fantastic resource for just about everything medical. Um, and according to the scholars at UpToDate, the use of prophylactic therapy for seizures is not typically part of the plan of care, but you may see it and that would be why, because the patient's at risk for seizure. You also will be seeing that the MD has ordered their vitamins and nutrients replaced. So thiamine supplementation is going to help prevent that Wernicke's encephalopathy that we talked about in the very beginning. Folic acid, multivitamins are also given to patients with alcoholism because these patients are usually very, very undernourished. If the patient cannot take PO medication, you may see these three medications, thiamine, folate, and multivitamin, combined together in IV form in a big IV bag, often referred to as a banana bag because it's a little bit yellow because that multivitamin IV is kind of yellowish. So you hear someone say banana bag, you know that they're getting these vitamins as IVs. You'll also be Often replacing and optimizing electrolytes, this can be IV, this can be PO, depends on if the patient can safely swallow. And speaking of that, we do want to optimize their nutrition. So um, they do have high metabolic demands because of this uh, excited autonomic state that occurs in withdrawal. If they're not safe to swallow, they're NPO at first. It's highly likely that the patient will be on dextrose infusion to help help meet the metabolic demand and help keep uh, hypoglycemia at bay. So you may see that. You definitely want to keep the patient safe from harm. They may need one-to-one observation. They may need restraints. They may need both. And then you also want to provide resources when the time is right. So speak to the doc about getting a social work consult for the patient and do what you can to support the family. So once this crisis has passed, the patient may need social work to help them navigate their continued recovery. And the family may need support as well. And social workers are fabulous at providing resources and connecting people to resources. So the E in latte, how will you educate the patient and the family? So I just have to say about this that witnessing a loved one going through withdrawal is really, really distressing for family members. You want to ensure them that the symptoms the patient is experiencing are expected. Not that that makes it any less upsetting for them, but just so that they know it's expected they may worry a little bit less because some of the some of the manifestations of the symptoms are quite quite bizarre with the hallucinations so just let them know this is expected course for alcohol withdrawal and here's what we're doing to help mitigate these symptoms you know you can talk about the medications that you're giving and all of that once that patient gets through the initial crisis they will definitely need education about alcohol cessation and any risks associated with their continued use. Now, they may refuse all education on that topic, but you've got to at least try. 
If your facility, again, has social workers, they are great at providing information about resources and support groups. They can let them know where the nearest Alcoholics Anonymous meetings are. Family members may benefit from support groups as well. So don't look, don't overlook an opportunity to help. Say the patient refuses any intervention, the family may still need some extra support and care to get through this time. And then the patient's also going to need some education on maintaining their nutrition, um, keeping up with their hydration, recognizing signs of dehydration, what to do if they notice bleeding, just thinking about things that they're at risk for. And that could change. You know, one person may be more at risk for bleeding than someone else. So tailoring your education to what's going on with the patient and letting them know A, how they can optimize their health to their best ability while they're out there in the community, and B, when to come back and seek help. Um, It's also very beneficial, I've found, to provide patients and families with the SAMHSA, S-A-M-H-S-A, hotline number. That's the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration hotline number and their website. So the hotline number is 1-800-662-HELP. Super easy to remember. 1-800-662-HELP. They can call that number anytime, 24-7, and get connected to some help of some kind. And I advice on resources in their uh, in their in their community. And then the website has a ton of information as well, which I will link to in the episode notes and on the blog post associated with this podcast episode. So that does us for alcohol withdrawal, guys. Thank you so much for hanging in there. I know that was a heavy topic. It's very sad and it's very challenging as a nurse to take care of these patients, but I hope that you approach them with compassion, grace, empathy, and a non-judgmental attitude and just do your best to keep them safe and prevent complications and you will be doing a very, very good job. So next week, we will be talking about a great way for you to keep yourself safe and your patients safe in the clinical setting. And that is giving medications in an absolute bulletproof way. So check back in next week if you want to bulletproof your medication administration. See you then. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing.